What are the things you're thankful for, but only when you don't have them? This past week, I got the right turn signal in my car replaced because it was driving me nuts. You don't think about your right turn signal unless your right turn signal has gone out. And then whenever you turn left, it goes cha-ching, 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 like that regular rhythm of a blinker. But when you turn right, it goes chinka 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 like it does a different sound so that you know that the light is out. And that drove me nuts. Like I I never knew, and I, I called the mechanic and I was like, bro, listen. Like I don't like, and I know a lot of you guys can probably change a blinker on your own. Um, <laughs> I'm too much of a city boy, I guess. I have no idea. Uh, but I, I don't know how to change my blinker. And I was too lazy to go on YouTube and figure it out. So I called my mechanic in Stoughton. I said, hey, dude, uh, my right blinker is out. If I dropped by, do I have to send an appointment or can you just fix it really quick? He said, we'll fix it really quick. So I drove by there and they came out and fixed it without any heads up other than me just showing up. It took him about three minutes. I asked how much I, I have to, you know, how much, how much do I owe you? And he just stuck out his hand for a handshake. Really good guy there. And uh, I was on my way. And oh my gosh, the gratitude I felt because I have a right, right blinker. Have you ever been like incredibly grateful once you got toothpaste? Or maybe you've run out of deodorant and you're tired of using rubbing alcohol in your armpits? Okay, that's, I, I'm just saying, there's a lot of things in our life to be grateful for that we don't think of very often because we spend so much of our life chasing things we don't have. And right now, um, there's a lot of people struggling with mental health and emotional health. And UC Berkeley did a study on the effects of gratitude on mental health a few years ago. And they discovered they had three different control groups. And uh, one group, uh, didn't, they didn't have them do any of this stuff. That was a group, that, that was a control group. That's the one that they're studying everything else against. The second group, they had them do these different exercises and then, uh, and then stop. And the third group kept doing these exercises for the entire uh, three-month uh, study. And the first of the four things they learned was this, that gratitude unshackles us from toxic emotions. They said that our focus on the good things we already have in our life allows us to mentally release the negative emotions that we've been hanging on to because of the things that we don't have. Uh, Aeschylus, who was the first of the three ancient Greek uh, playwrights who were the guys who started like the Greek tragedies. In fact, this is the guy who introduced for the very first time in history a co-star to the story of a play. He said, gratitude turns what we have uh, into enough. And that's what the study said. Gratitude says, I don't need more to be okay. And if you're Think through all of the things that make you feel un-okay. It's because you're in a state right now where you feel a deficit. And so this transitioning of our attention from the things that we lack into the things that we already have ends up being the mechanism that allows us to let go of the negative emotions that are dragging us down. The second thing that this study from UC Berkeley discovered was that gratitude helps even if we don't share it. 
So I dug into this a little bit more, and I had to read about the activities that they did. So uh, the second group and then the third group. The second group um, were told to write thank you letters, and then uh, they had half the group send it to the person that they were thankful to, and then the other group did not. And then they measured, uh, they did a, like an like a TMRI or an EMRI, something like that. I can't remember. There's another letter in front of MRI. And what they found out is that sending the letter or keeping the letter had no effect on the positive benefits of being grateful. So it wasn't the consideration of how the person they were grateful to was going to receive their gratitude as much as the fact that they had internally, internally shifted their attention towards gratitude that made the biggest difference in their life. The third thing they discovered in their study on gratitude is that gratitude's benefits are cumulative over time rather than immediate. So that was the difference between the second group and the third group, is that they had them stop doing these different activities towards gratitude. But the third group, they had them continue doing these uh, gratitude exercises, for lack of a better term, that's what I'll call them. Um, and then it had a cumulative effect, like almost like a compounding interest to it. So it's not that this was the control group. They were the ones struggling with their emotional health. This group starts doing things. And by the way, in the first week of the study, there was no mental health change or emotional health, a qualitative difference in any of the participants of the study. But the longer they focused on gratitude, the more significant the change in their emotional and mental health. So if the control group was down here, the second group was right here, it's not that the third group was right here. The third group was like here. It was that the longer they made a practice of being grateful, the more significant the change in their emotional and mental health. And the fourth thing they learned in the study is that gr gratitude has a lasting positive effect on the brain. People who are more grateful, they said over time, showed, this is their phrase, when I read this, you're going to go, yeah, Sean didn't write that. Greater neural sensitivity in the medial prefrontal cortex, which is the part of the brain that is associated with learning and decision making. Uh, there's a Olympic cyclist. Her name is Kristen Armstrong, and she said this. She said, when we focus on our gratitude, the tide of disappointment washes out and a high tide of love uh, rushes in. Now, I don't know what you were hoping that we'd be teaching on today. Maybe your hope was that we would be uh, doing a series on relationships or anxiety or marriage or parenting or like, I, I, I don't know. But what I'm learning is a lot of these other difficulties that we have in life are caused by an attention that we have on things we don't have but feel we should. And there is a possibility that our inability to find gratitude or to focus on the good that is in our life is having a negative effect on many other areas of our life. Um, we spend much of our lives pursuing, this is part of that study, we spend much of our lives pursuing things that we don't have, and gratitude reverses our priorities to help us appreciate the people in our lives, the opportunities presenting themselves to us now, and the things that we already possess. Rabbi Hyman Shachtel says this, and you've heard this before, you might not have known it was Rabbi Shachtel. He said, happiness is not having what you want, 
It's, do you want to finish it? It's wanting what you already have. I've seen people's attitudes change on mission trips. I think the first time I saw this was in Guatemala. One year, and by the way, we're going to Guatemala again in February. And um, this one, and a lot of young adults and students go on this trip. Families even. This is the one trip where families can go and are encouraged to take their kids if they want to. Um, but when you go to Guatemala, and you know we stay in this in this uh, group home that's actually purchased and bought for church groups that go visit the different projects that we have through the Mana Worldwide Initiative in in Guatemala. Um, you're exposed to what it looks like to not have all of the conveniences that we have. So students, young adults, adults even, will go with a certain, uh, like we, we bring baggage with us, things that we're wishing was better about our lives back home. And over the course of the week that we're in Guatemala, you can hear the conversations in the evening when we do our little wrap up at the end, move to a place of, uh, man, gratitude. Like minimum wage in their country is $400 a month. It's 4,800 a year. And 70% of their country doesn't even make that. 35% of their country does not have access to electricity. And many of the villages we visit have no running water uh, or any type of sanitation services. And when you spend an entire day with children that you know, if they're lucky, will be able to eat rice and rice alone this week, you start to look at your own life differently. And what happens is it's that shift from the things I lack to the things I already have. And sometimes we have to be exposed to the lack before we are grateful for what we already have. And the truth is there's good all over your life. And what I wanna do today in the teaching is I want to show you that all of the beautiful good in your life is a gift from God. Now, James chapter one is probably going to be the theme verse for the series in the month of November. And James chapter one, verse 17 says this, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God. Our father who created all the lights in the heavens and he never changes or casts a shifting shadow. He chose to give birth to us by giving us his true word and we out of all creation have become his prized possessions. So I want you to ask, or I want to ask you, what do you consider good and perfect in your life? Like make a mental image. What are the top two or three things that pop in your head? What is good in your life? And what are those things that are just right? And like, I'm not asking what are things that are bad. All of us have things that are bad in our life. All of us have things that uh, can easily bring fear into our heart. And I'm asking you for a moment uh, to put those things in a box and set them on the table. What I want you to do is I want you to make a list in your head of all of the good and beautiful things in your life. And the scripture says that those things came to you from someone. Where does the Bible say those things came to you from? They come to you from God. And my next question would be, why would God want to give me good things? Because some of us would not necessarily classify ourselves as a person who's necessarily in a close relationship with God. So why would God give us good things? I think the answer to that question is in Romans chapter two, verse four, where it says, don't you see how wonderfully kind, 
tolerant and patient God is with you and me in our brokenness and the stupid things that we've done and our selfishness and our pride, like all of the reasons why I would think that there's no way that the good things in my life come to me from God, right? Like that's, I'm the source of the good, you might would say. Uh, why would God do anything for me? The answer's at the end of this verse where he says, uh, does God's goodness to you mean absolutely nothing? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from sin? Toward who? Toward him. God's goodness, according to the Bible, is to turn your heart toward him. I mean, verse 18 of James chapter 1 said that it was so that you could be born into his family by his word and become his prized possession. There's like a full stop here. Because God has an agenda. Like, that's what I want you to see. Like, God, you're not a, a nameless face in a crowd. And you're more than a social security number to God. You're an actual person that he's wanting a relationship with. And he's wanting to grab your attention by the good things that he's done in your life. And he wants to do good in your life in such a way that it causes you to go, holy crap, why is this happening to me? Why is this good here? Like, I don't, I don't deserve this. And you don't. I don't. Like, what, what does God owe me? What does God owe you? Like, he doesn't owe us anything. So when we see the good in our life, and it causes like, like, how did this, Good luck, I guess, right? You, you might would say that. Or we'll assign it to something else or an astrological sign. And, and the truth is these good things come into your life because God is wanting to get your attention to be turned toward him so that you would be drawn into his family through his word and become his prized possession. That's God's agenda. So at the time that I have left, I want to give you three truths about God and his goodness. And the first is this. No one is self-made. No one is self-made. What are your best qualities? What like, what makes you unique? All of us have something that we're good at, right? Like, what are you good at? And hopefully it's more than just drawing anime, or it's more than just playing solitaire, or more than just being great. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I was going to say Call of Duty or... Like, what are you good at? Okay, like you might be good at sales, but why are you good at sales? Like, what are you leveraging about yourself that makes you good at sales? Or it might be good at, at programming, at code, at, I mean, at, I don't know. Like, but you're great, you're great at something. What is it that makes you great? Whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming to us from God, the Bible says. So what I want you to recognize is that part about you that you appreciate most that you did not choose to be an asset that you would have, this part of your personality or your wiring or the way that you think or the way that you see things intuitively, this is something that you didn't choose for yourself. I th I'm thinking of, um, there's a guy from the late 90s, early 2000s, uh, Sid Meier's Civilization game, where uh, it was like, a it's an RTS, a real-time simulation game where you would uh, open up this, this game um, I don't, it was never on uh, a phone or console it was, or a gaming deck. It's always a computer game. 
And you could start building a civilization as different people throughout history. You could start as an ancient Greek or an ancient Roma. You could start as an ancient Hebrew. That was always one of them. Or the Hittites, I think, was one of them. Like You could pick a different people group from ancient history and start a new civilization. And whichever one you chose came with a different head start, a different skill set that the other groups that you could have picked didn't have. So if you pick the Romans, you started with extra ability to make a military. Uh, if you came, I, I, I can't remember all of them. I just thought most of the time picked pick the Romans because I like fighting all the other civilizations in this game. But each one of them came with like a different cheat code. And there's something about you that's a cheat code that not everybody has. And you didn't pick the cheat code you were born with. And it's for that reason that I can say with intellectual integrity that you're not a self-made person. Like whatever you and I make of our lives, we've become because we've leveraged things that we didn't choose for ourselves. Like even my physical abilities, like I didn't choose to be born with the ability to speak or to hear or to move all of my appendages or to see in color. Do you see what I'm saying? Like there are things about me I didn't choose and I've just leveraged those things into whatever life that I have now. But God is the one who's the giver of these good things. They come to us from him. Matthew chapter 7 verse 9 says, you parents, if your children ask for a loaf of bread, do you give them a stone instead? Or if they ask for a fish, do you give them a snake? Of course not. So, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give good gifts to those who ask Him? I, and that's the crazy thing, I think. How much more will He continue to give? Like, God isn't done. God's not done being good to you. And that's awesome. What that means is that what I have now isn't the end of all that God intends to send this direction which frees me up to be more generous with what I have because I know that there's more coming. Like we start to be, we get really stingy when we feel like this is all we have. And that's where I'm going. It's a recognition that I'm not the source of all the good that God is that allows me to continue being a conduit of good because I know that whatever good I extend is backfilled by more good from God. That's what I know. Here's the problem. As long as I think I'm the source of all that is good in my life, it will continue to produce in me a scarcity mentality. Since I'm the one who's bringing good, I must continue bringing good or the good stops, it goes away, and I suffer. Then I begin to save all that I have because I do not know if I'm going to get any more. And the solution to this is recognizing that I'm not the source of good in my life. Because when I see everything as a gift from my Father, I recognize that He's the one who can and will continue giving. Therefore, I can hang on to what I have more loosely, knowing that this isn't all I have. Gratitude is to generosity what sunlight is to plants. The more sunlight, the more flourishing it has. The more gratitude I have, the more generosity I have. Maya Angelou said this, when we accept gratefully, 
then we give cheerfully and everyone is blessed. Gratitude recognizes our dependence on God and focuses our attention on Him and His will for our lives. That's the first truth of God and His goodness is that nobody is self-made. Like, I'm not the source of good. Number two is this. God is the giver of the good and the owner of what is good. Psalm chapter 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all of its people belong to God. Like the whole ball of rock that we sit on, all of this is His. And I think it's it probably is funny to him in an ironic way that we'll fight over things that we're changing hands. And the truth is it all belongs to him anyway. It's like if I had a pet and my pet feels that this thing, that, that this house is their house, right? That the yard is their yard. My oldest and his wife are living with us right now and they've got an apartment that they're moving into, but it's not ready yet. And we love having them around and their dog is adorable. But that dog thinks that that couch is its couch, and that drives me nuts because it's a nice couch. I have not always had a nice couch, but now I have a nice couch, and I don't want that dog putting its stupid, muddy feet on the end of my, like, that is my couch. But because I've made this home and our yard available to the dog, he mistakenly thinks that it's his. But none of it's his. I just let him use it. And I think there's a certain freedom that comes to those of us who recognize the exact same thing about ourselves. That everything about my life is a gift. And I am beholden to the giver. And truthfully, everything that I have won't always be mine. It will be given back. So I'm even just a temporary not shareholder, that would imply ownership. I'm more of a manager. So our our family, my father-in-law has rentals. <clears throat> and as, as the owner, other people live in this house. And they are expected to take good care of that house. Because my father-in-law is the owner of it. They are the temporary stewards of an asset that does not permanently belong to them. And as such, he has expectations for how they treat it. And that's what I'm saying an emotionally and spiritually healthy person does in regard to the way that they consider their own lives. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 4 says, For every house has a builder, but the builder of everything is who? It's God. In Matthew chapter 25, it's my second favorite chapter in the Bible, Jesus tells a story of a master, and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. Now, remember, we, we did a series recently on the kingdom of heaven. We said that the kingdom of heaven is our conscious choice to live under the authority of God. And Jesus said, for those who make a conscious choice to live under the authority of God, it's like this, that there's a master who has three servants, and he calls to him his three servants, and he gives to them everything he owns in different proportions. But they're given what they're given in proportion to what he knows that they can manage. So the first guy gets five parts, the second guy gets two parts, and the third guy gets one part of everything the master owns. And Jesus says, and in the kingdom of heaven with this story, 
the master goes to a far country and they go about their lives managing these assets that belong to the master as though they have full autonomy and authority over these assets, and they do. So the, the first guy recognizes that all of this belongs to the master. He's responsible for it, so he needs to use it and leverage it well, and he does. He does everything with it that he knew the master would want done, and as a result, it multiplies and comes back to him, and he has 10. So when the master comes back, the first guy's called in. and goes, Master, you gave me five, and I knew that these were yours, and I wanted to leverage them the way you wanted, and I have five more. And the master says, well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over little. Now you will be faithful over much. So five-eighths of the master's wealth, he called little. Now you'll be rewarded with being responsible for much. The second guy comes in. And now he was only given two. But he recognizes that both of the things he owns, or the two parts that he owns, belongs to the master, and even though it's under his authority for now, it isn't his to do without regard to the one who gave it to him. And so he leverages it the way he knows his master would, and it doubles. And he brings it back to the master. He says, you gave me two, and I'm bringing you back four. And the master gives him the exact same blessing. He said, you were faithful over little, now you'll be faithful over much. Because what they had been given wasn't the point it was what they did with what they had been given. The third servant comes in. He'd only been given one. And the master knew that this guy would struggle with more than one because he was given one in proportion to what the master knew he could handle. And he acknowledges, I know that this is from you. I know it belongs to you. And I know you had high expectations. But I was afraid I would lose what you had given me. So I didn't do anything with it that you wanted. And the master called him wicked. And I'm telling you, this idea or the lack of recognition of where our good comes from and who owns ultimately what's been given to us is going to lead us to a place of fear where we're going to be afraid of losing what we even have. And we're not going to leverage what we've been given the way the master wants. And in the end, when we stand before the master, having had given everything back, there'll be regret. That's not what I want for myself. First Timothy chapter 6, verse 7, 17 says, Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Here's a question. What are we, those of us in the West, by the way, all of us, even those who are in, uh, meet the standard of poverty in America are wealthier than like, what is it, like 87% of the rest of the entire world? Listen, if you live here in America, by the world standards, you are wealthy. Now, maybe not by the guy who lives next door or the people who live in the next town over, but by the world standards, you are the wealthy. And this verse says that we are tempted to put, when we're tempted to take our faith and trust off of God, it's because we're putting our faith and trust where? I'll read it again. That's the question. Where are we tempted to transfer our faith off of God onto something else? Ready? Here we go. Teach those who are rich in this world not to be proud and not to trust in their money, which is so unreliable. Where should our trust go back to? Their trust should be in God, who's the one who richly gives us all that we need for our enjoyment. The more we have 
it's possible that the more we have, the more we hoard. Because the more we feel we have to lose. Maybe. I mean, truthfully, here at Grace Church, we have poor, we have middle class, and we have wealthy. And I don't know where you would see yourself in there. But I'm wondering if the same, first of all, I'm wondering if there was ever a time when your generosity met what God's expectation was for what he had given you. And second, I'm wondering if that's changed over the course of time and whether that grew or shrank in response or in proportion to whether or not your wealth had grown or shrank. So I was going to make a declarative statement that I don't think is true for everybody, which is the reason why I backed off of that, just asked you to evaluate yourself on this. Who gives us all that we need for our enjoyment? According to the Bible, God's the one who gives. I've used this story before, but uh, with each one of my kids, when they were little, I would have to pour them their cereal. And I always did this. My kids even remember me doing this. I would pour them cereal, and I would always ask for the first bite. Why? Because I wanted to know if they trusted me, if they loved me. And what was incredibly disappointing to me is I don't remember a time when any one of my kids gave me the first bite. <laughs> Apparently, I'm a horrible father. They didn't love me as much as they loved them fruitios, dang it, right? But the reason why they had such a hard time giving, like once, like I am the source of all the fruitios. And when I give them the fruitios and they now have it in their hand, now fear takes over. And if I give any of this, Back to dad, it means I'm going to get one last bite, not knowing that I've got the rest of the box, bro. And I've got the car that can take us to the grocery store and get an unlimited, not unlimited, but you know what I'm saying. I could buy out the rest of the fruitios in the store and you'll have all you'll ever need. That's, that's the idea. It's this, God, you don't owe me any more than what I already have. It's when we start becoming obsessed with the good that we already have rather than our focus being on the lack of things we don't have, that I think we begin to personally become emotionally, mentally, spiritually healthy. And our attitude toward God and the way that we live our lives towards others begin to change. The third truth I know about God and His goodness is this. Gratitude is the recognition of God's provision. Uh, my son, who is living with us now. This past week, we were talking about the way that he's wired and the things that he loves. And they moved here from Denver. And one of the things that he loves, misses most, is how accessible the outdoors were when he lived in Denver. Like within 30 minutes, he could get to a place where he could not see, where he didn't see any remnant of human civilization. And what he loved most about that, I said, what do you like, you know, what do you love about that? And he said, it's easier for me to focus on God in nature. And that's what I miss. And I get that. I really do because surrounded by everything man makes, it's easy for everything God has done to be hidden. And I think sometimes we sit in our cars, in the driveways of our homes, having returned from our jobs where we made our money and forget that all of this is temporary and every bit of it is a gift 
from the one who could take it all away in any given moment. Like, it's fragile. And everything turns at the whim of God. Like, He is sovereign over everything. Which is the reason why the psalmist says in Psalm 107, verse 1, he says, Give thanks to the Lord because God is good. And He is, man. Like, look at your life. Not in comparison to somebody else or what you don't have or what you used to have. Look at where you're at right now. And I'm asking you to see the good that is already there that you have possibly forgotten about. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 20 says, And give thanks for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, because He's the source of all the good. And He still owns it, and He's put it in your hands. Give thanks. Colossians chapter 3, verse 17, whatever you do or say, do it as a representative of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. And truthfully, even when things are bad, we can be grateful because Romans chapter 8, verse 28 says, we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes for them. There is a posture that we take in every interaction with another person. Arms folded or arms open. Legs crossed, legs uncrossed. Our posture can determine the nature of the relationship that we have with this other person, and it almost probably determines the tone of the conversation we're about to have. Some of us are more welcoming in our posture and our tone, and some of us are more apprehensive. Some of us are leaning in, and some of us are becoming defensive. Some of us are very generous and giving, and some of us are very guarded. What I'm asking you to do is to consider your posture toward God. Now, all of my children are adults and are capable of making their own decisions at this point in their life. But I don't ever want any of them to forget the love and care that my wife have always shown to them. I mean, my son owns a home, my daughter owns a home, and no doubt they bought those homes. But so much of their lives comes from the relationship that we've nurtured with them. And I'm I'm not God. I'm, I'm not saying that, and I don't want them to treat me as God. All I'm saying is that I'm not ex- crazy to expect a certain amount of humility from them and a recognition of the way my wife and I have taken care of them. And by God's grace, all of my kids are respectful. They're phenomenal. And that's such a weird thing for me to even talk about. Like, When you're fabulously generous towards somebody, I don't think you're nuts to expect a certain amount of appreciation. And that's all I'm saying. And if as a parent, we feel this way, I don't think that God's being a jerk to say that he expects the same kind of thing. Right? And all I'm asking for you to do today is Four things. One, to acknowledge to God that you are dependent on his goodness. I think that's good for us. God, I am utterly dependent on you for good. And I'm thankful. That's the second thing. Acknowledge your gratitude. Acknowledge it. God, I am, everything that I have comes from you. 
And I am thankful for every bit of that. Every bit of that. And you might say, well, I'm, I'm not, there's nothing I can be thankful for. I'm sure if you looked hard, you could find something. But even if you're going through a bad season, I think the gratitude is in that you can say, God, I'm thankful that you will use even this dark season for something good on the other side of this. That's where the gratitude comes in. Number three, commit to God your willingness to offer every part of your life for whatever he wants in your life. That's it. It's the idea of the three servants. It's everything that I have belongs to God, and I am making every part of my life available to you. The way that I, I handle my career, the, how I do my time cards, what I do with my money, how I spend my free time, what I do in my retirement years, how I interact with this other person that I'm dating. God, everything I have is on the table to be set however you direct. That's the third thing I'm asking you to do. And I'm asking you to acknowledge that everything comes from him. That's it. So if you would bow your head with me, and we'll start off the month of gratitude in this way. God, I love you with all of my heart. And we are acknowledging that we are completely dependent on, uh, on you. Uh, none of us even exists without your intention. The boundaries of our habitation and the time in which we dwell were established before you laid the foundations of the earth, the Bible says. Like, we are not accidents. We exist at your discretion, and we're acknowledging that. God, we're grateful for every good thing in our life that you've brought uh, because you didn't owe it to us. And so I just want to say thank you for that. And I'm making every area of my life available to you. So if there's any part of my life that I've said is off limits to you, I pray that your Holy Spirit would convict me. Show me the parts of my life that I've not submitted to your authority, and I will give them to you. That area of my life belongs to you also because all that I am and all that I have is yours. Thank you for loving us and being kind and gracious and tolerant. Thank you, God, for bringing us into your family and making us your prized possession. We're grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.